Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. I have finally shamed people into sending me comments, and I am really happy you have. So all of you out there that have not been shamed enough, take shame and send comments in because these are really good. Now, uh, here's the first one I want to read to you today. In fact, I have so many, I can't even read them all in the first program, so, or this program for this taping. So, uh, anyway, this goes, Hello, JBL. Your program on books is absolutely enlightening. Now, I did not write this myself. I, I, I have it right here <laughs> in front of me. It was sent to me on email. It says, Your program is among the programs I make sure I listen to each week on KPCG Radio. Thank you for taking us on adventures through some of the greatest writers who challenge our gray matter to think beyond mere words or our eyes see. You take us into the mind and heart of the authors. This is no small thing. It is evidence of your comprehending, researching, and seeking out deeper understanding of what you read. Thank you for sharing with us your love of reading. Only the best literature. And that's Cheerios. And it is from a... uh, a woman who does write her own books. And so I really feel honored. Now her pen name is Lucinda Baya. And so if I'm saying that right. Anyway, she is the author of Encore and the Land of Santan. So uh, I really thank her for that. I have a few more, but I'm going to have to wait to the next program to read those because we have a lot to discuss today. So on our last three podcasts, I discussed the warning signs that Marlowe ignored about the company and the African continent. He was bent on pursuing a childhood dream of visiting the, car- the continent, and his resounding response to all these warnings, and he did feel them even emotionally, he said, dash it all. So, so he rejected the warning signs, and of course this is really uh, endemic in all human beings. And so uh, I think uh, certainly Conrad wants us to learn, hey, if you see a warning sign, if you feel uneasy about something, maybe you better think twice. Now, for today's program, I want to expand our discussion of Marlowe, but focus on a different subject. Now, to help me do this today, I have formed a men's panel to help me. I'd like to welcome two former students of mine. First one is a senior here at Armstrong College, and it's Parker Campbell. Good to be with you today. Welcome, Parker. Now, Parker also assists Grant Turgeon uh, on his podcast, Behind the Work, and he adds an Armstrong College segment every now and then to the podcast, and uh, you can clarify that with me. Parker, how often do you do that? We shoot for once a month. At the end of every single month, we we try to have one about the college and some of the background information that's happening over Uh, here. That's great. So so, uh, I've heard them. And uh, it's good to have you come over here with us as well. Also with me in the studio is Gabe Greaser, who is a junior here at Armstrong College. Welcome, Gabe. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Glad to have you back. Now, Gabe is also my personal assistant who wears many hats for me. Uh, He uh, helps me with a lot of things, and uh, he's uh, kind enough to come on the radio today. 
So today, fellows, let's uh, let's talk about how Marlowe learns about the supposedly awesome character Kurtz. <laughs> and uh, this is leading into big discussion we're going to have about Kurtz later on. So uh, uh, I thought maybe we had to just start out early on, and this would be like page 25. And uh, this is where Marlowe meets the company's chief accountant. Now, I, I really think, just, just from a writing standpoint, maybe I'll just start off with, with what I think. Uh, first of all, I think Conrad is, is a genius in the way he writes. So, so not only is he getting us interested in Kurtz, but he's also telling us about the company at the same time. And so, so uh, some of these characters that, uh, that Marlowe meets <laughs> are not the most upstanding characters. And so, uh, so remember, as we get into page 25, remember uh, that, that Marlowe kind of has just gotten on the continent. He's finally having contact, you know, with the company. And remember, the whole job of the company is to bring civilization to this poor black or this dark continent. And, uh, you know, he sees when, he, when he's his first view of the company, it's all in disarray. Trucks are all apart in pieces. You know they're uh, they're digging this hole in the ground and has no reference to anything, and uh, he thinks it's there just to be philanthropic. You know, give the poor black people something to do. Essentially, is what he's thinking. And then, of course, uh, you know he's walking along in the heat. You know, he finds out that this continent is really hot. Tries to get in the shade, and and essentially, I think Conrad gives a just a great description there. He calls it an inferno of shade. And there are the, the uh, you know, the indigenous people, the blacks, are dying of disease. <laughs> and so, so instead of running back and saying, okay, I'm getting off this continent, he just, he wants to go on. So, uh, so he meets, um, the, he actually meets uh, this guy just on page 25. He's like, He's like an anomaly. He's he's seen all this corruption. He's seen all these problems, and uh, you know here is the the chief accountant for the company, and he is dressed to the hilt, <laughs> like he just got out of this air conditioned office, and his office is like even the roof is slatted, so the sun comes right into his office. Okay, so let's let's talk about um, the accountant for a while. Well. Like you said, in a society, or not a society, but in an area that's so uh, wild and unkept, it talks about him having starched collars, right? These vast cuffs, his hair is brushed. He's got himself very well kept for a man that's surrounded by and in an atmosphere that's not very well kept at all. So it's kind of ironic that he's so well off and so orderly and, and kept himself but and that's the challenge of it i think for that guy you know for for anybody that's going into this this congo area where they're going into they're they're they you know it, it's a it's a wild brush kind of place right and it's a challenge to remain in a state of order it's a challenge to remain mentally in a state of order as we learn later and we see all throughout this book but even to have it physically right that's obviously a start and it's impressive that the chief can do that much uh, yes, if you if you remember, if you uh, back into the very beginning of the book, his aunt is really big on the company because 
you know, she says it's going to take civilization to this area. And uh, this guy is the only civilization you can find <laughs> when, you, when you first get to the company. I mean, like you said, he's dressed in starch shirts. He's, he really keeps himself together. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, th there is no evidence that civilization is being transferred beyond the people that are supposed to be giving the civilization. And so we'll see more of that. So, so uh, I, I like the comment that, that says that here he, uh, he kept his books. He's an accountant. He kept his book, you know, like apple pie. You know, he, they were apple pie books. <laughs> right. And then, then uh, he kept himself together, and he said that's backbone. Yeah. You know, in, an, in a crazy environment. So uh, I guess I should say he kept his books in apple pie order. So uh, my wife's apple pies are always in order. So. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Gabe. What do you have to say there? I think his just the way he's dressed just kind of shows what the company was at least intending at the time to bring into Africa with a civilization. Like you have this man who's uh, dressed really well, um, like in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the jungle of Africa, and I think they're just trying to, in a sense, build up like a higher standard they're trying to colonize africa they're trying to bring their values into it obviously that's not exactly what ended up happening as we'll see later but i think it's just interesting to see how he's dressed and how that could um also apply to the colonization of africa by the belgians right right i'm just going to read just a little bit here um you know, there, there for a while he was loitering in the shade he said and then he, he had to get out of there because uh, you know people were dying, dying of disease. But uh, here's here's what he says about you know the the uh, chief accountant. He said I shook hands with his miracle, and I learned he was the the company's chief accountant accountant, and that all the bookkeeping was done in the station. He had come out for a moment. He said to get a breath of fresh air. The expression sounded wonderfully odd, with a suggestion of sedentary desk life. So so in other words. How can you come out in the heat of the Congo and get fresh air? You know, it's just that the, he's, he's saying, well, he, he finally realized it's just because he's sitting at a desk all day. He said, I wouldn't have mentioned the fellow to you at all, only it was from his lips that I first heard the name of the man who is so indissolubly connected with the memories of that time. Moreover, I respected the fellow. And so, so he's saying... That, that the reason why this man was important to him is because this is the first time he hears the name Kurtz. And so, so uh, remember now, of course, uh, uh, all of you listening out there, remember Marlowe is telling the story years, supposedly years after he really experienced it. And so, so in other words, not only are we getting a... It, it's not like we're getting a current event of, um, discussion. He's looking back in his mind, and uh, so so he sees, uh, you know, this is a great memory. He says, um, yes, I respected uh, his collars, his vast cuffs, his brushed hair. His appearance was certainly that of a hairdresser's dummy, but in the great demoralization of the land, he kept up his appearance. Now that's backbone. Um, but, it, but if you go down through the page, uh, again, or through his discussion, um, Marlowe does see that, that supposedly this, this area is supposed to bring, you know, civilization in order. But notice, he also noticed, he says, everything else on the station was in a muddle. Heads, 
things, buildings, strings of dusty uh, blacks with splay feet, th uh, things, buildings, um, uh, a stream of manufactured goods, rubbishy cottons, beads, brass wire set into the depths of darkness, and in return came a pernicious trickle of ivory. So, so Marla begins to see there's, there's something going on here with the ivory. And uh, he's really kind of frustrated that he's, he's stuck at the station. He wants to get on. He wants to get on his uh, steamship. He wants to, or his boat, I guess you could call it. He wants to get going, and uh, he can't get going. But here he finds out that there's this man, Kurtz. And then uh, this, is, this would be at the top of page 27. And it says, one day he remarked without lifting his head, in the interior, you will no doubt meet Mr. Kurtz. On my asking who Mr. Kurtz was, he said he was a first-class agent. And seeing my disappointment at this inf information, he added slowly, laying down his pen, he is a very re remarkable person. Further questions elicited from him that Mr. Kurtz was at present in charge of a trading post a very important one in the true ivory country at the very bottom of there, sends as much ivory as all the others put together. He began to write again. The sick man was too ill to groan. The flies buzzed in great peace. So we skipped over the fact that there was a, a man dying in the office at the same time. So, so there's our first uh, discussion of Kurtz, that he's a first-class uh, Let's see, did I get that right? Yeah, first-class agent, and uh, he's a very remarkable person, and uh, uh, he's also very important because he's, he's in the true ivory country. And so, so I think uh, all of us can see that there is this, um, um, the underpinning of ivory is there the whole time, the, 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 the thing that's so important. Um. He, I think he goes on down there. I think we ought to read this a little bit, too. It says, when you see Mr. Kurtz, he went on, tell him from me that everything here, he glanced at, at, at the, uh, the desk, it is very satisfactory. I don't like to write to him with those messengers of ours. You never know who may get hold of your letter at the central station. He stared at me for a moment with his mild, bulging eyes. Uh-oh. He will go far, very far. He began again. He will be somebody in the administration before long. They above, the council in Europe, you know, mean him to be. So, so supposedly when we meet the, the uh, uh, accountant for the station, we find out that they have a lot of, of he has a lot of positive things about Kurtz. And uh, uh, he, he leads Marlowe to believe that this guy is really going to be a part of the administration in Europe. So so he's, he's really going to go forward. All right. So uh, as we go through this, we'll find out that that probably will never happen. All right. Okay. So next one, he meets the manager of the central station. So page 28, we want to get in there. It says, um, uh, the next day I left the station at last with a caravan of 60 men for a 200-mile tramp. So uh, in other programs I brought out that from the, his book, his diary of the Congo, we know that, that his first trip into Africa was not the most comfortable. And so, so here he's still trying to get further and further into Kurtz, and he's, uh, he's, he has to go for a 200-mile walk 
uh, you know, to, to get there. And the, the, the thing is, what, the reason why this section here I think is interesting is it keeps getting more and more disastrous the more he walks into Africa. And, and yet, it, it's, it's like he doesn't turn around, he doesn't go back, and uh, you know, he, he just keeps going. And it's, it's um, uh, kind of unbelievable. I and mean, Marlowe just seems to me, the way the character is written, that, that he would be, you know, tough enough to uh, to realize you know, this may may not be good, and uh, this whole section I think is interesting in the book because it keeps getting worse. Like he runs into uh, there is a you know uh, he, along the path there is a, a middle aged Negro with a bullet head in his forehead, <laughs> you know, uh, so he's been killed. Um, then there's another white guy who wants to be a part of the station he's he's overweight and here he is walking in all this heat can't even you know hardly can walk up hills he keeps passing out and so they have to get a team of black men these black africans that you know the natives to carry him and, and they have to carry him uphill and they at night they all mutiny <laughs> they don't want to carry him anymore and so so he's he's got to deal with all this and uh uh, so, so the man that passed out, he goes on to say, he says, uh, you know, they drop him and then they run away from him. It says, the heavy pole had skinned his poor nose. He was very anxious for me to kill somebody, but there wasn't the shadow of a carrier near. I remembered the old doctor. It would be interesting for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. So uh, if you remember back to when he was getting sent, they measured his skull. And so now... What, what Conrad is telling us through Marlowe is, man, people went mental. They did not keep their sanity when they were in, in the, uh, uh, in the Congo. All right. So so he meets then uh, uh, the manager of the station, and uh, I, I think uh, we probably ought to skip down to uh, uh, the bottom of page thirty. It says, "My first interview with the manager was curious." He did not ask me to sit down after my 20-mile walk that morning. He was commonplace in complexion, in feature, in manners, and in voice. He was a middle size of ordinary build, his eyes of the usual blue, which would uh, indicate he was probably native Belgian. It says, uh, were perhaps remarkably cold, and he certainly could make his glance fall on one as a trenchant and heavy as an axe. So, um, you know, this is another manager... He's a manager of the central station, I guess. And, and notice that, that Marlowe says he inspired uneasiness. I mean, he, he was not, not, not someone that was very nice to meet. And then, but, but here, this guy has such a, an incredible, um, you know, things to say about Kurtz. And again, you have to, to uh, you know, if you read through all that, again, the situation just gets worse for him. But then on the bottom of page 32, he begins to talk about Kurtz. And so we, we get another another uh, indication of what Kurtz is like. So uh, anybody want to make a comment on what he has to say there? Well, well, even before page 32, I just think there's an interesting line there on page 31 at the bottom <coughs> where uh, he writes, Because triumphant health in the general route of constitutions is a kind of power in itself. And, you know, sometimes you hear people people say that if you don't have your health you have nothing and out there in a wilderness like that 
where people were constantly getting diseases. People were constantly dying. You know, we hear about the flies in the first station right. swarming around the dead guys or, or the sick fellows, rather. And, uh, and then as it continues, there's all this death along the route, right? But even like he makes the point here, if you have good health, if you have the stamina, the endurance to do the job, then you're going to go a long way. And that's a good start. And that's, to me, that's a really interesting and powerful point to be made because obviously if you don't have good health, you're not going to be able to handle your body. You're not going to be able to do the work right. that you're there to do. Right. right. And, and when we get down to curse, we're going to see that what's the thing he lacks most? Mental health. Mental health <laughs> and good health. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Gabe, do you have any comments there? Yeah, I think it's interesting how he describes the uh, manager of the central station. He's almost the complete opposite of the uh, chief accountant that he meets earlier. It says here that he had no genius for organizing, for initiative, or for order even. That was evidence in such things as the deplorable state of the station. So, I mean, the station where the chief accountant was one wasn't exactly the greatest thing either, as it describes earlier. But not if you have dead people dying in your office. <laughs> yeah, definitely not, but... <laughs> Just even here, the way this guy seems to be put together by uh, Marlowe, he's just the complete opposite. Yet still, everyone that he has met so far, and even going in further into the book, you notice that they all have um, like this this deep respect and admiration of Kurtz, which is quite interesting um, based on what we will find out Marlowe sees about him later in the story. Right. Right. At the bottom of page 32, if we just go down there, it says there were rumors that the very important station was in jeopardy. Its chief, Mr. Kurtz, was ill. So so this is when um, Marlowe begins to understand what they really want him to do. You know, it's, and, uh, it, it says, um, I hoped it was not true. Mr. Kurtz was, I felt, weary and irritable. Hank Kurtz, I thought. I interrupted him by saying I had heard of Mr. Kurtz on the coast. Ah, so they talked from him down there, he murmured to himself. Then he began again, assuring me Mr. Kurtz was the best agent he had, an exceptional man of the greatest importance to the company. Therefore, I could understand his anxiety. He was, he said, very, very uneasy, certainly. He fidgeted on his chair a good deal. He exclaimed, Ah, Mr. Kurtz, broke the stick of sealing wax and seemed dumbfounded by the accident. Next thing he wanted to know was how long it would take to... I interrupted him again. Being hungry, you know, and kept on my feet, too. I was getting savage. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're hot, just, you know, walk 200 miles. A little bit hangry. You know, you're hangry. Yeah. Some months, he said, well, let's say three months before we can make a start. Yes, that ought to do the affair. Remember, uh, you two, that, that the, the steamship he's supposed to be managing or captaining, it's, it's broken. It's all broken down. You know, so, but uh, they want him to go out and find Kurtz, and so uh, uh, anyway, he he's beginning to realize that wow, everybody has this love for Kurtz, but um, you know what's really going on here. He goes on to say, I went I went to work the next morning, turning so to speak my back on that station, and that way only it seemed to me I could still hold my still keep my hold on the redeeming facts of life. So he's already starting to be affected mentally by what's going on there. He said, still, one must look about sometimes, and then I saw the station, these men strolling aimlessly about in the sunshine of the yard. I asked myself sometimes what it all meant. 
They wandered here and there with their absurd long staves to their hands like a lot of faithless pilgrims bewitched in a side or rotten fence. But notice he begins to realize the word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed. You would think they were praying to it. A taint of imbecile rapacity blew through it all, like a whiff from the from some corpse. I've never been anything so unreal in my life, or not ever been, excuse me, I've never seen anything so unreal in my life, and outside the silent wilderness surrounding this cleared speck on the earth struck me as something great and invincible, like evil or truth, waiting patiently for the passing away of this fantastic invasion. And so so here he, he's, he talks about all these these um, men that think all this of Kurtz, but then he's, he's now talking about the immensity of the environment, and it's almost like he goes over and says, well, it's this, this immensity of the environment also says Kurtz is great. You know, how can he survive out there? You know, that's, I think that's what he's saying. Um, if you go, uh, let's say, if, if we go on to the next, the next big thing, and we're going to run out of time, fellows for this program but he comes up to what they call the first class agent and uh so so this is it's a little bit different he's a different kind of guy but um uh it, it, he goes on to say uh uh in this one that there was this immensity of the the environment but then he he's uh, still not left the area he's in and he says one evening a grass shed full of calico cotton prints beads and I don't know what else burst into a blaze so suddenly that you would have thought the earth had opened up to an avenging fire consume all that trash and so so you know there's problems there at the station just be, just because of the environment and uh, um, you know he, he said that uh, uh, you know it was it was kind of a shocking thing to see it and then he meets um, you know, there was a stout man with mustaches came, tearing down to the river, a tin pail in his hand, assured me that everybody was behaving splendidly, splendidly, dipped about a quart of water, tore back again. I noticed there was a hole in the bottom of his pail. So so they couldn't even <laughs> put the fire out. <laughs> and so he's, I see, he goes on to say, I strolled up, there was no hurry. You see, the thing had gone off like a box of matches. It had been hopeless from the very first. The flame had leaped high, driven everybody back, lifted up everything, and collapsed. The shed was already a heap of embers growing fiercely. Uh, it says, then a, uh, a black man was uh, beaten nearby. So so this this poor black guy gets blamed for it all. And uh, he, he goes on to say, as I approached the globe from the dark, I found myself at the back of two men talking. I heard the name of Kurtz pronounced. Then the words, take advantage of this unfortunate accident. One of the men was the manager. I wished him a good evening. Did you ever see anything like it, eh? It's incredible, he said, and walked off. The other man remained. He was a first-class agent, young, gentlemanly, a bit reserved, with a forked little beard and a hooked nose. He was standoffish with the other agents, and they on their side said he was the manager's spy upon them. So, so uh, you know, as... Marlowe gets closer and closer to these agents, he begins to realize there's problems internally. And, uh, you know, here's this uh, first-class young agent, and, uh, you know, he, he seems like, uh, you know, he's very slender. 
you know, he's he's uh, um, you know he, he's got this neat trim little beard. But uh, Marlo gets to meet him, and he when he gets into his little apartment, he finds out it's full of all kinds of you know a collection of things. He's got a collection of spears. He's got shields. He's got knives that uh, they're they're hung up as trophies. And so, so in some ways, remember now that they're supposed to be there to, you know, bring civilization in. And this young agent looks like he's trying to what? Bring their civilization into his place. Bring their bring their civilization into his place. And, it, you know, is this a forewarning or a foreshadowing of what happens to Kurtz? I mean, this is happening to this young guy. Uh, he goes on to say... Uh, and this is Marlowe, says, there was an air of plotting about that station, but nothing came of it, of course. It was as unreal as everything else, as the philanthropic pretense of the whole concern, as their talk, as their government, as their show of work, the only real feeling was the desire to get appointed to a trading post where ivory was to be had so that they could earn percentages. They intrigued and slandered and hated each other only on that account. But as to effectually lifting a little finger, oh no. There was something after all in the world allowing one man to steal a horse while another must not look at a halter. Steal a horse straight on? Very well. He has done it. Perhaps he can ride. But there is a way of looking at a halter that would provide the most charitable of saints into a kick. So what he's saying is the morality is is really all turned upside down there. You know, you know, in some lands you go, you steal a horse, you get killed. You know, there you steal a halter, you get killed. And so uh, uh, we'll come back to this uh, in the next program. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, we'll continue our discussion of how Marlowe learns about Kurtz. Now, you can buy Heart of Darkness on Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com